Hi, welcome to Conversations on Public Health. I'm your host Prachi. Join me every week as I travel across India, speaking to folks who are solving massive public health challenges facing our country and the larger developing world. Hi Shweta, a very welcome to our show. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? All right. Um, so let's dive right in. Our topic today is COVID in rural India. Uh, it would be good to hear from you. Uh, could you give us like a quick overview of what we are dealing with? Like, what is the rural healthcare system even like? Right. So I think to begin with, it's very useful to remember that the healthcare infrastructure in rural areas is quite different from what we are accustomed to in the urban areas, right? So mm-hmm. it's essentially a three-tier system. And primarily, we're looking at three things, a sub-center, a primary health center, and a community health center, which mm-hmm. commonly are known as SC, PHC, and CHC. And these terms mm-hmm. are very, very well known in the rural area. So it's not like the rural population is not aware of what these things are. Now, mm-hmm. to give you a quick definition of these three things, the sub-center, which is the smallest unit between the three, the sub-center is one which connects the community to the primary healthcare system. And it is mm-hmm. required to be manned by at least one AM or a female health worker and one male health worker. That is um, who's who's an A and M? auxiliary nurse and midwife. Okay. And uh, for the sub-center, it's advised that there should be at least one sub-center for a population of 5,000 when we are looking at plains and for a population of 3,000 if we are looking at tribal areas. Mm -hmm. Then the next thing that we deal with is the primary health care, the primary health center, PHC. Uh, The number being lower for tribal areas because they're more sparsely populated? Exactly, exactly. They're more sparsely populated and the requirements in a tribal area are also slightly different when it comes to the plain area. So the primary health center, that is in effect a referral unit for six sub-centers and it's a four to six bedded unit which is manned with a medical officer and 14 other subordinate paramedical staff. This PHC Mm -hmm. then becomes the first contact point between the community and the medical officer. Now the PHC... Like a doctor. When you say a medical officer, you mean a doctor. Yes, like a proper doctor. And here we are not talking about a health worker or just a A&M. Somebody who's more qualified, mm-hmm. can deal with slightly more... Um, advanced Advanced issues. health issues, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is what your primary health center is. And a PHC is required. One PHC is ideally supposed to be present for a population of... 30,000 in plains and 20,000 if you're looking at tribal areas. Mm -hmm. Finally, we come to the community health center. Community Mm -hmm. health center, the CHC, is supposed to be a 30-bedded hospital or a referral unit. Now, this is supposed to be manned by four medical specialists, ideally a surgeon, a physician, a gynecologist, and a pediatrician. This also has to be supported by paramedical and other staff. The numbers are a little sketchy. Usually, it's said... 21 paramedical and other staff is needed <clears throat> and this CHC is supposed to have you know an operation theater it's supposed to have an x-ray unit it should have a labor room all of these things like right that. now uh, your CHC ideally 
should be present for a population of 120,000 if you're looking at a plain area and 80,000 if you're looking for a tribal area this so is broadly what... most so mostly like every block should have a yeah. a chc or every tehsil should have a chc exactly every block or tehsil should have a chc now this is what right. your broad definitions of sub center primary health center and community health center look like in mm-hmm. practice however there are some differences as one would imagine <laughs> in fact i mean if you look at the who recommendation and we are talking about even the old who recommendation we are talking about the 2000 who recommendation which said that there has to be the doctor density should be 1 is to 1000 for doctor to mm-hmm. population ratio and in india currently only 11 of our states meet that criteria And in the rural areas or just overall, when we take like just overall okay. if you're looking at even broadly only states only mm-hmm. 11 states managed to meet that criteria and the states with right. highest shortfall of doctors happen to be uttar pradesh chhattisgarh odisha and madhya pradesh and the reason i bring mm-hmm. the names of these states particularly is because if you just do a quick google search about problems in rural healthcare during the pandemic it is in all probability that you will find primarily or in fact even only these states you'd hardly hear of large scale problems from states other than these so it also mm-hmm. boils down to this kind of shortfall of doctors we are a year if more than a year into the pandemic and we still haven't ramped up no our healthcare infrastructure itself to deal with the pandemic i think that should qualify as a broad overview of the rural healthcare system it would be good to also understand what the private sector looks like when it comes to healthcare in rural india there mm-hmm. is a lot of talk that we hear about even quacks before we even go to private healthcare we hear a lot of talk about quacks being present in the rural healthcare systems and the rural population relying on quacks such as the talk mm-hmm. and if you look at um a lot of these media reports which are written from a very surface level they would bring that fact quite often that the rural population relies on quacks more than a formal healthcare system now the thing is we cannot deny that quacks exist of course quacks exist and commonly as you would know they are referred to as jhola chap doctors or mm-hmm. different states have different names rajasthan um, calls them bangali doctors i don't know why bangali but they do <laughs> so they do exist and sure when quacks exist when these are people who are informally trained or even untrained it's quite likely that mm-hmm. they cause more harm than good all of those possibilities cannot be ignored however the thing is that there's a reason that they exist now coming to your question about private healthcare systems in effect when accessibility to a formal healthcare system is so limited the rural mm-hmm. population has to go to private healthcare system as well and when they go to a private healthcare setup the out of pocket expenditures really just blow up do you think it's fair to equate the private healthcare system to quacks i mean i have also come across such observations of people of trying to equate quacks and private healthcare together but i mean i don't think there is adequate information available i mean adequate evidence available for us to come to such a conclusion 
and especially if you mm-hmm. look at how a particular state looks at their clinical establishment act and how well enforced their clinical establishment act is that goes on to tell us a lot about how much of the private healthcare system is regulated how much of it i mean what are the checks and balances present for one to mm-hmm. set up a private healthcare system you know so for instance right. in uttar pradesh the clinical establishment act is not very well enforced so the possibilities right. of you finding a quack in a private healthcare setup in up is far more than the possibility of you finding a quack in a private healthcare setup in rajasthan where the clinical establishment mm-hmm. act is quite strongly enforced and there are supposedly adequate checks and balances to ensure that these informal doctors or untrained doctors do not get to establish such systems coming now to something that uh, you know feeds from my uh, experiences on the field in rural india um and i wonder if you have an opinion on this is uh, this push for digitization and its implications on rural india uh, i've often found that um, you know healthcare workers spend a very large proportion of their time just maintaining records or you know uh, entering data in like four different softwares um and that would and doing that on a very limited infrastructure setup uh you know they may have one computer which ha- which has a very old software running on it um no electricity sometimes they have internet connection sometimes they don't and and the irony of it is that despite all of this we don't have good data on what is happening right i think it's very interesting that you brought up this bit on digitization in these times because we live in such absurd times when everything around us in terms of healthcare infrastructure is crumbling there is this rush towards digitization as if digital india is going to save us all from this misery and sure i mean if we are to even look at the pre pandemic times even then mm-hmm. this push for digitization was a huge bane for healthcare workers and frontline workers in rural india and this is, i agree this is as you rightly pointed out it only adds to their burden without duly compensating what they are putting into it and at the same time adequate infrastructure is not present as you said the thing about computers not being present hardly there are computers around most of these phcs or even uh, most of the sub centers that i have seen in odisha most of them don't have access to computers most of the ashas anganwadi centers and anms do not have access to computers where do you expect them to record these things digitally and even without mm-hmm. this digital push they already had so much of a record keeping task to keep up with instead of simplifying mm-hmm. that task you are making it more complicated and that is something which this push for digitization has really done in pretty much all aspects related to any kind of welfare mechanism be it for right. your pds or right now as we are saying in terms of healthcare services and mm-hmm. especially now this push for digitization has taken in my opinion has taken two most dangerous turns one is the kind of sos requests that we are getting and two is the mm-hmm. reliance on systems like covin 
So in terms of SOS mm -hmm. requests, um, all of us who are now present on Twitter, are active on Twitter, all of us have seen a complete ambush of SOS requests all day. And in fact, it was much more than what it is right now. The SOS requests mm -hmm. have come down on Twitter, at least. And that's the thing. Mm -hmm. All of us were really scrambling for information, trying to look for beds, oxygen, ICUs, ventilators, looking for teleconsultations, and so on and so forth via Twitter. Everybody who had a medical mm -hmm. crisis was putting up such SOS requests on Twitter. It got so absurd that hospitals finally had to create Twitter accounts just so good that they let authorities know that we are running out of oxygen in X number of hours. It really mm -hmm. got to that point. And the problem then is, it. I mean, we did not get a sense of what is happening in rural India. Rural India does not have that kind of access to internet. I mean, yeah, they don't even have that kind of access to smartphones, forget internet, and then forget Twitter. Right. It's as if you're expecting somebody with a medical emergency has to have Twitter for them to be able to stay alive or to keep their loved yeah, one alive. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Right? And if you right. just even look at the official numbers, and these are not even survey numbers that people like you and I have put together, if one is to even dismiss such a number. So even according mm -hmm. to TRI, India has 58 internet subscribers for every 100 people. 58 mm -hmm. out of 100, which means that there is a significant part of the population does not have a internet connection. How do you expect right. these people to then put in their medical emergencies? How do we get to know that rural India is also crying for help? So, right. Yeah. And, and then to talk about, like, I think dismissal of reality when you make an app like Coven without surrounding it with adequate infrastructure for those who don't have access to an yeah. app like Coven. Exactly. As in, Coven is a complete... I mean, Coven just makes such a complete mockery of the digital inequity that we have in this country. As if the digital inequity will just vanish if you make this app. How are these people going right. to get vaccinated. Like in Odessa, for instance, recently we got to hear about, in the Sundargarh district of Odessa, the Paudi Bhuyas, who are a particularly vulnerable tribal group, we got to know mm -hmm. that the Paudi Bhuyas are now infected. And this was a secluded, remote area of Odessa. And mm -hmm. this caused a lot of panic, rightly so. And the thing is that, I mean, Paudi Bhuyas have, activists have also rightly pointed out that they have never really been able to trust the government or the people from the plains for historical reasons. That is not going to change mm -hmm. overnight. And now suddenly, you are pushing this um, mandatory COVID on them. How are they going to do this? When you don't build... And sorry, I, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, these are very historical problems. And these are questions about trust. And when you don't build the trust with a stable public healthcare system, technology is not going to save you. Technology cannot miraculously erase these inequities. It can right. only exacerbate it further. Uh, just so that I'm, we're a little clear on this, um, 
do you feel like the app itself is problematic or the lack of adequate facilities for those who don't have access to coven that is the problem i think my problem is with the app itself i think my problem is with mandating coven as the only means of entering the system right now that's the so so basically yeah. the fact that coven's not an option yeah exactly it's not an option it used to be an option earlier but it's not an option anymore like no one's talking about the effect the impact of all of this on gov- on other government welfare programs yeah like for instance there is no official account of what has happened to sexual and reproductive health rights during the pandemic exactly. sure there are a bunch of here and there reports that some people mm-hmm. have written i have also written such things but i'm talking about a more official response to these things is there an official response mm-hmm. about these things absolutely not. In fact, was there even a clear form of official communication about what is covid? How does one deal with it? And why is it a problem? Was there even a clear public health messaging put together just so people could understand and then trust the government and trust whatever healthcare facilities would were promised? Uh it wasn't i mean i would say it wasn't apart from that caller tune that all of us was subjected to um, is right. is that all so, there was there was not enough outreach then by the government exactly uh, or enough ic material enough ads you think not just ads but if you are to create trust how do you go about creating trust in the people in such absurd unprecedented times it has to be more bottom up right it can't be so top down as newspaper advertisements with a large blown out face of government officials that's not enough let's talk a little bit about you know trust in government institutions and in uh, you know in healthcare facilities like for a lot of us uh, at least in urban areas we don't depend on the government for medical or educational services right we right. go to private hospitals we go to private schools but for a large chunk of india right public healthcare facilities or uh, you know public schools they really depend on these things and and the trust in these institutions and systems was already very low yeah you're right and of late at least um, especially i'd say especially during the second wave this discontentment has just really blown out of proportion because of so many factors i think one of the examples that i can think of right now is again from uttar pradesh because uttar pradesh really never leaves you short of examples like these things true um, true not very long ago 14 doctors at a community uh, and primary health center in unnao they submitted their resignation they alleged that there was misbehavior and harassment by administration uh, officers mm-hmm. they said that they were being asked to give explanations to the dm and cmo they were working with such limited resources and in fact they also went ahead to say that their salaries were withheld and we have heard so many such stories of government health doctors i mean government doctors complaining about their salaries being withheld and then they go on protest we're losing time here and not just that we're really just making their morale go down so much more 
and it's not the case no, only with healthcare workers and i mean yeah it's not just doctors as well recently the kind of things that even teachers have had to go through the teachers association in uttar pradesh recently pointed out that over 1500 government teachers died of covid-19 after the panchayat elections over 1500 mm-hmm. but the state government dismissed it all they said that these were all wrong and baseless claims and they said uh, right. if i recall correctly they said less than 5 teachers have died during the poll duty so on one hand we have a number 1500 and on the other hand we have a number less than 5 what do you think this does um for the future you know what what is the future of publicly funded and publicly provided services um in india there are there are so many of these short video clips of asha workers and anm dds which are circulating on the internet and if you just listen to them it's heartbreaking because they talk about how they are losing faith they work with such a mm-hmm. paltry honorarium honorarium and that's still not a salary we're facing a raging yeah, pandemic uh, and they're not salaried yeah, they're workers not salaried right workers. they they're called volunteers yeah exactly they're still not salaried workers and that's the thing the government cannot mollycoddle our healthcare workers and frontline workers into believing you know an illusion of dignity and respect with these theatrics of tali thali bajao phool barsao you can't mollycoddle them into believing that they need to be provided protective gears they need to be given their due remunerations and incentives their leaves have to be supplied to them medical attention has to be provided to them and so much more and you call them covid warriors but we've seen this happen so much even last year when any kind of criticism however legitimate and or or moderate was always met with stern action which included but was not limited to show cause uh, notices so then what is the future of publicly provided services in india uh sometime in december that i remember i was having a conversation with this doctor from aims and uh, he almost broke down on call with me saying that the government is actively trying to dissuade us from doing what we are doing and i don't know if i would ever want my child to be in this profession and he then told me that mm-hmm. this is not simply a covid situation the government is also trying to do it through other roundabout ways like increasing the fees like pushing for privatization of medical institutions people are people are going to be a lot more hesitant yeah. to work in the public Absolutely. sector way more than what it is now and this is um you know like government employees or people who are working in the sector what about the the public how much more hesitant do you think they will be to approach the public sector for help or do you think in a few years it'll all be forgotten and we'll just get back to where we were i don't quite think that i jump to a conclusion that the public will be distrustful of government healthcare facilities in future and would prefer private institutions instead and i wouldn't say that primarily because of the experiences of patients that i have seen in private healthcare systems the kind of overcharging the kind of exploitation that patients have had to face in private healthcare systems during the entire pandemic 
is just absurd. Mm-hmm. So much so that there were so many cases of patients being held hostage in private healthcare systems. So, given such situations, I, I wouldn't. I, I don't think I would jump to that conclusion that people would be more distrustful of government healthcare facilities. You know, I'd quickly now like to talk a little bit about the effects of a largely urban media covering this pandemic in rural India. Right. But we've seen uh, there have been some complaints about like a lack of sensitivity yeah. in the way that they're doing it. Uh, and also like the portrayal of rural populations in a certain way, which which is mm. biased. My problem with uh, the ur- largely urban media writing about rural healthcare systems during the pandemic stems primarily from the fact that it is as if all of a sudden you have realized that you need to write about public health systems. And you have realized that you need to do mm-hmm. it from the rural areas because that story is then more appealing to you. And I would also want to give this mm-hmm. caveat that it is not a dismissal of all media efforts towards this area at all. I am surely not dismissing some of the stellar works that people have done during the pandemic in terms of covering the rural healthcare system uh, right now. But I am very, very uncomfortable with the kind of writing that talks about vilifying the rural population and portraying as if these people are responsible. I mean, the as if the onus is entirely on the rural population itself. You know, the narratives of mm. saying that the rural population is ignorant, is illiterate, does not trust the medical system, relies only on quacks, does not know how to use masks, does not believe in COVID, does not believe in vaccines, and hence, this is why here we are. That is what I'm... So it's playing, so it's playing exactly. on stereotypes, right? It is absolutely playing on stereotypes. And on the uh, like to just add to that, it also shows that you know, you have never engaged with public health itself then. You have no idea with two things about two things. One, public health, and two, what a rural infrastructure looks like. What does a rural community look like? And I said they do not have an idea about public health. My problem is when you start seeing things on a very surface level without quite understanding that this could be something more than what it is. Like, for instance, if you're writing about oxygen black marketing in rural areas, you can't simply write about oxygen black marketing as if it is a law and order problem, as if this is something that the police has to intervene, go for a raid, uh, keep the oxygen cylinders, Mm -hmm. and hence, voila, problem solved. You can't see it simply as that. You have to take into account that there is a reason for this kind of oxygen shortage, you have to take into account that patients and their families and their attendants are really, really hanging on to a last thread. They're searching for one small glimmer of hope. So it's absolutely bizarre if you are facilitating any kind of inaccessibility and or or criminalization 
in this entire process. That's what my problem is. Now the mm -hmm. other thing, um, right. the thing about urban media not really being aware of the rural community and then playing on these stereotypes is this. But as if public health in rural uh, India, as if it is only about medicalization, it is not only about medicalization. If you say that they do not trust your formal medical setups, pay a little attention to why do they not trust the formal medical setups. Think about how mm. many ashas, anganwadi uh, workers, and AMMs are present in that area. Pay a little attention to what is the role of these people. A little attention to what does the anganwadi center do? What does the sub center do? These are and really, this is not an academic quest for nuance in the stories. It's, it's really not. It's a question of life and death here. Exactly. If you do not understand what social security mechanisms look like in rural India, you stepping into the community and just blatantly portraying as if they are responsible for their own misery alone is not okay. At this time, if you're going there and doing a story about how they are relying on quacks for COVID treatments, and look, it's so stupid. Look, it's just bizarre. You know, making it as if it's a circus. That's not okay. If these people are relying on quacks for COVID-19 treatments, please pay attention to how far is the nearest formal healthcare setup. If it is 60 kilometers away, which is what we have been hearing about a lot of villages, that villagers have had to wait for three days to just reach there. Villagers have had to wait for five days, eight mm -hmm. days to get the RT-PCR report, you know? So think about how far is the formal right. healthcare system? How do the people reach there? What are the transport options? And when you look at even transport options, so if I spend an entire day just to reach the healthcare system. Am I losing a day's wage? Am I a daily wage worker mm -hmm. who might end up losing a day's wage? To just give this disclaimer out of the open that this is not an advocacy for quacks at all, but this is to say that we have to look at these structural problems and thereby then make an effort to facilitate accessibility and affordability of healthcare systems. So I understand the lack of context that an urban media might have on rural problems. Right. What confounds me is why aren't we hearing more from local media? I mean, I think we are hearing from a lot of these people as well. Like especially I have come across very, very well done reports from Bihar, from Jharkhand, and even surprisingly from UP as well which do mm -hmm. document these kinds of stories about what is happening in the healthcare systems. Recently, there was a story about DMCH in Bihar. Like the visuals are just very, very bizarre. There are pigs grunting near the hospital. There is not adequate, not enough sanitation facility available within the hospital itself. The doctors had not come for their regular rounds. The patient's uh, themselves had to be wheeled outside to go pee or defecate those things were also happening and i think today there was 
if i'm not entirely mistaken i think today there was a report of the hospital superintendent threatening the reporter of some action against the story so that's happening as well why uh, why do rural issues not make national headlines what is the root cause of you know all of us being completely befuddled by you know the current scenario in rural areas i really wish i had a proper answer to your question it's very very disheartening that even now we don't get to hear of what is happening in the rural areas or in these non metropolitan cities properly as we should be and this is something which which has plagued us not simply in terms of healthcare systems but also generally right yeah i mean i know a farmer protest because those protests they 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 reached delhi exactly right rural india has been in agricultural distress for many many years now and i don't think many of us really know about take for instance the violence in chatisgarh of late and what happened over the last two days is nowhere on the mainstream media yesterday john drees and bela bhatia they were detained and concerned citizens were crying about it everywhere on social media it's not as if it was not there this morning tell me one mainstream media publication which has covered the story one and here you're talking about john drees and bela bhatia these are fairly well known people i feel like i've heard Absolutely. more about it from tweets and not okay. really from the source where i would assume i should hear it from which is national newspapers yeah and that's also like as you pointed out it's so much to do with the bias of media you spoke about the farmers protest and that brings me to this i'm sure you must have noticed this as well it was far too late when we heard about nodeep kaur's incident in the mainstream media to give you a little bit of context she was a member of the mazdoor adhikar sanghathan mm-hmm. she was a part of several unions for industrial workers nodeep kaur this young 25 year old dalit activist was jailed there were reports of sexual abuse there were reports of assault and what not it was covered by mainstream media like i don't know probably a week later why did it take the mainstream media so long um, you know media is often called the fourth pillar of democracy right and over the past few years you've seen a real erosion of public trust in pretty much every pillar of democracy when it comes to institutions we've seen it and even with the media to the extent that we don't even trust the media now it is in part because of social media it is in part because of polarization uh, in part because of rising inequality what really worries me is i just don't know where we are going with this i mean it really just looks as if we are all staring into an abyss you know uh there is really such a problem of public trust as you so brilliantly pointed out this is a problem of public trust more than anything else yeah so what will it take to build that public trust you know we really have a long long road ahead and right now i think the immediate task at hand is obviously to prepare for this imminent third wave as we speak of and even for that we will have to build public trust we will have to understand that the public has to be taken into account when it comes to policy making so the government has to be transparent in their i mean all of their policy making mechanisms 
So if at all there are plans for ramping up the healthcare system finally, and we hope that there are, you have to take into account civil society considerations. You have to take into account all these suggestions that are being sent in regularly by civil society members. You have to take into account all these documentations about denial of patient rights. And you have to take into account that our healthcare workers and frontline workers working in remote areas of the country really need to be treated with dignity and respect so that they can do their job with that amount of dignity and respect. Right. Do you think the assumption of the government that the public can't handle the truth, that assumption really lies at the root of a lot of the problems that we're facing today? I think that's more of an excuse than an assumption. Mm -hmm. It's really more of an excuse and it's a very, very shoddy excuse at that. You continue to keep data away from the public and actively try to keep that data away from the public with this excuse that the public cannot handle the truth. And really that has happened in all areas relating to healthcare infrastructure, not just in rural areas, but also in urban areas, right? Mm -hmm. I don't mean to do a quick extrapolation of problems here, but simply just to point out the fact that that has happened everywhere. Mm -hmm. Government has tried to hide the data from public. And in effect, that has only done more harm than good. It has only made people more distrustful of the government and of any officials for that matter. We really need to understand that public health messaging has to happen. And it has to happen in a bottom-up fashion. Mm -hmm. It cannot be top-down and it definitely cannot be coercive. Right. If you are saying things like masks are useful, sure, go ahead, enforce it. But it cannot be through mechanisms of the police literally danda maroing a marginalized community. But, you know, we have seen like public officials not wearing masks when they are in public briefings. And we've also seen media of media uh, and reporters not wearing proper masks when they are reporting about these stories. That is true. It right. is not as if a public official was ever reprimanded or beaten up or anything of that sort for not wearing masks. Look at footages of election rallies. How many of these government employees were seen wearing masks? And then this kind of danda maroing which happens, and the danda maroing surely doesn't happen on everybody, right? It happens on a certain community. It happens in certain locations. And it happens because of our own discriminatory attitudes. I mean, see, you go ahead and give a thumbs up for Kumbh Mela. And then you come and tell me that I can't have a wedding party of 50 people. Why not? Um, where they can build public trust and they know that the third wave is coming. And that a new mutation would be responsible for the upcoming wave is my understanding. What do you think the government should do now to ensure that the third wave is not as traumatic as the second wave has been? Hmm. Sure, there are, of course, there are technical things that the government must do. 
and I mean technical not in a technological sense but in terms of ramping up the healthcare infrastructure but I think before that the government really needs to get its act together and think about framing public health messaging in a way that is bottom up in a way that takes into account what the public really needs at this point. It cannot be coercive, it cannot enforce surveillance, it just cannot be those things at all. And yeah, that's, that's what I would say is the first thing. And the second is that the government has to be transparent with its data. The government has to start putting out data. And by data, I don't mean simply the number of uh, positive cases being reported. Sure, that's important as well. But in addition to that, especially one of the largest challenges that we saw during the second wave mm -hmm. was that the government had been extremely unwilling to share real-time data regarding availability of medical resources. Do you think it was un do you think it was unwillingness or do you think it was incapability? It was absolute unwillingness. Absolute unwillingness. There was no reason why it could not have been done. And I have one very simple reason to say so. The task of putting out such real-time data primarily rests on the nodal officers and the district surveillance officers. Mm -hmm. It is their task to identify who the COVID patients are and in effect facilitate that the COVID patients reach the required medical, uh, medical resource. Mm -hmm. It was always their job. However, during the second wave, this was done almost entirely by volunteers mm -hmm. who have had no training or no experience with doing these kinds of things. Right. So what exactly what's the job description of the nodal officers and the DSOs? God knows. So this is so if random volunteers like you and I can sit together and ensure this is done, there is no reason what, that the government with all the resources that it has mm -hmm. would be incapable of doing it. This is a sure case of unwillingness and a sure lack of political will to do this. Right. If you can make apps, and every day we hear of new apps and new websites being designed, I'm sure you can put together a few people to attend phone calls. A functional telephone number is not too much to ask for when people are dying in thousands and lakhs. Right. Um, this has been a very enlightening um, conversation. Shweta, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Prachi. It was really nice speaking to you.